Matthew chapter 23. We're going to work our way through the chapter. Message entitled, The King's Last Address. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That you have given us marching orders, that you have given us everything we need for faith and godliness. Lord, I pray now that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit, that the message would be from you. And Lord, that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners as your children, Lord, that we might take the word in, and Lord, that we might be equipped for every good work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 46, the last verse of chapter 22 It says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. From Sunday through Tuesday, Jesus was never more messianic. He took over the temple grounds, he cleansed the temple, and then he began to teach. He already knew that the Pharisees were trying to kill him, and they'd banded together with the Sadducees and those that ruled the temple, but they couldn't because the people loved him so much. And the temple was filled with people from all over Israel that had come down for Passover. And he was teaching them. Now they had tried to trap him. We looked at that in the last couple of chapters. First they came together. Then they sent once the liberals, then the conservatives, then the liberals and the conservatives. With these big heavy questions, they thought they had him trapped. You're not going to trap God. And his answers were so simple. And yet so wise, he shut their mouths. The Bible says that that's what his righteousness does, that one day before the great white throne judgment, every mouth will be silenced. There'll be no answers. There'll be nothing saying but, no excuses, only guilty hearts. Now you think for the king's last address, he might come with one more plea, And he does give invitation at the end, but he comes with harsh judgment for false teachers and false teaching. His last public address, those that have tried to trap him have kind of slunk to the side, and so once again he speaks to the disciples and to the crowds, but they're there. And just like when he began his ministry, and we have at the beginning the great Sermon on the Mount... It's like he points across at those Pharisees that even then were waiting to trap him. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. But even in his rebuke, there is love. See, God always brings the law to bear because the law makes us guilty. But then there's the grace of God that gives us hope and salvation. So he begins in chapter 23. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. He said, first of all, they have no authority. I didn't put them there. God did not put, the Father didn't put them in the chair of Moses. They just kind of took it over. 
They've seated themselves as authorities. That's what false teachers do. They come across like they're the authority. But God didn't put them there. And he said, so what they tell you, when they're speaking God's word, see, God is able to hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. So when they're speaking God's words, listen to them. That's why it's so important that God's ministers, God's teachers, have a life that matches. When you look at the qualifications for teachers, for elders, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, there has to be character that matches so there's a righteous testimony. So it's believable. These guys have no authority, and they're not believable. When you get behind the scenes, you find that they're corrupt. They're only serving themselves. So in the first 12 verses, Jesus says three basic things about them. They have no authority. They have no sympathy. And they're pretentious, proud, and self-serving. Don't be like them. So in verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them by even a finger. They won't even help with a finger. Why? Because they want to keep people entrapped and controlled. And they hide and they separate. So you don't really see them. That's why I'm so thankful for the West Institute. When Clayton sat down and wrote the, the, the game plan, the, the teaching plan, the whole bottom line for the West Institute is we want students' lives, their, the way they live, to match the theological statement. It's not about just getting facts in the brain so that they will have a believable testimony when they go to teach others. So they're equipped both in life and in the Word of God. But these have no sympathy and no care. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at Israel. They were like a herd that was scattered without a shepherd. No one cared for them. The expert just showed up to lay heavy burdens on them, and they left them alone. They were there for them to pillage and to steal from, but not to care for. Verses 5 through 7, he said, For many, excuse me, but they do, he said, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Titles. They're all about the titles. They're all about what people think because they're self-serving. They're pretentious, proud, self-serving. You see, the messenger of God has to leave that behind. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're not going to be well-liked by the world when you stand for Christ on any platform. That's why it's very difficult. Maybe you think, well, I'm a student now. Later when I become an adult, I'll take a stand, it'll be easier. No, because then it'll cost you money. Yeah. You hear Christians all the time, well, I'd take a stand on my job, but I could lose my job. Really? And God's not in charge of that. God couldn't give you something better if that's what it took. But these false teachers are only taking care of themselves. Verses 8 through 12, don't be like them. 
He's telling them he's going to go in and, and bring judgment on them in the next, the rest of the chapter, but he's telling his disciples as they are there together and all, the whole crowd, don't be like them. The people saw who they were. It's like they had no other option. So they're being robbed. Every time they brought a sacrifice, they were being robbed. And the Messiah has cleansed the temple, and he says, there is another option. Follow me. Verse 8. Don't be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you all are brothers. What you'll find in religion, in man's religion, there's always this difference, this separation. The clarity and the laity, the cloth and the lay people. That's why it really struck a wrong chord with me when I saw we have this quarterly little bullet we put out there. Some people have general information. We try to send you the website for all the particular for announcements. But it came out and they had me listed as senior pastor and Pastor Hal listed. And then everybody else, all the elders, other elders were lay elders. Said, no, 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 get that out of there. Because it gives people the, mind, the idea that, oh, well, these are the second team. They're not the second team. We don't, do any, we don't make any decision unless every one of those elders is on board for it. And every one of those elders has responsibility to pastor this flock, just like I do. Not all of them don't necessarily get paid by the church, but they all have equal responsibility when it comes to eldering, for praying, for studying the word of God. You see here, if they're not a pastor, they're not an elder. It's not just a bunch of businessmen that sit around the tables and tell the pastors what to do. All of us on the team are pastors here. But in a lot of Christian denominations, they have the difference. You'll have a guy up here with a you know, collar on, and, and you'll have this, just like the old Jews, they have their phylacteries and their things that are hanging off. Oh, they have special names for them. Even the evangelical circles, titles. I remember introducing a, not knowing what I was doing, I was introducing a lady pastor to somebody one time, not from our church, okay? And uh, I got her title wrong, and I introduced her as the Reverend so-and-so, because I'm not into titles anyway, but I knew she was, and I got it wrong, and she stopped right there. No, no, no. I'm the Reverend Doctor, or the Right Reverend Doctor. Oh. Hmm. My dad, all through his ministry, and we realize that when somebody's ordained, sometimes they put that in front, reverend. But he didn't like that at all. Because the Bible says there's none reverend but God. And there's no difference. We're all servants together. And we have different giftednesses and we have different responsibilities. But Jesus is saying, listen, don't, don't call one guy Dr. Soap Big Britches. He's not rabbi. There's only one teacher. The rest of us are just under shepherds. We're all servants of God. Then he says, don't call on anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he is in heaven. Heard that before? Oh yeah, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but a lot of the, the Christian world has people set up as fathers. And the idea is they give spiritual life to people. Only one gives spiritual life, and that's God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But people like those greetings. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Don't be called leaders, for one is your leader, even Christ. Now we recognize there are gifts of leadership, 
and there are different leaders in the church, but it's not about the titles. Remember the false teachers about the titles they can get. And the separated off from everybody else. Said, you're not like that. Verse 11. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. God has a way of teaching those that he's called to lead in the church. My son David in Germany, after his first three years, said, You know, Dad, I think this is called Jesus School for Pastors. Anytime you start ministry and you're ministering the Word of God, you're going to go through some trials. And is God just humbling you, letting you know who's in charge? Even if you knew it before, you know it by practicality. You will be tested in that. We are just here as teachers to bring the word of God. See, even in Christianity, much as pressure is put on pastors to build the church. We've got to build the church. And we can even take on some of the false teachers' methods in order to get a result. That's not what God has called us to. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's not up to us to figure out how to build it. John chapter 5, Jesus said, the Father is always working. Our challenge is to find out where the Father is working and follow him there. Not build the church. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter Three, and he said he was a, called himself a master builder. And what did he build with? He said, well, every Christian pastor, every Christian worker has an opportunity to build with gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, stubble. The world's methods, the false teacher's methods might get a result as far as the world's concerned. And that's why we see in America churches filled with tares. John MacArthur, I saw a quote this last week on Facebook. I don't know how it got on my page, but there it was. And it said, when the church becomes like the world, it has nothing left to offer the world. But that's what's happened in the whole seeker-sensitive movement. It's not about truth anymore. We've got to back off some things because in the world, we've got to be politically correct. If we're going to get hearing, and they, they have a good motive, and that's so they can finally see somebody get saved. But that's what Paul said. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the whole gospel of God. For it is the power of God and his salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, We preach not ourselves. It's not a person's position or what they've accomplished in life that will bring a person from darkness to light. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is telling these people, Don't be like them. You follow me. Then he begins his condemnation. In verse 13, through the end of the chapter. Verse 13, he says, woe to you, scribes. Now listen, when Jesus says, woe, you're in trouble. You better woe. Because judgment is coming, and he is laying a curse. You would think if they were standing over there, they'd be shaking in their boots and running for the hills. But they were so filled with pride. Now we know it had an effect. Because after Pentecost, after the death of Stephen... It says, many of the priests also became believers. So it was beginning to have its effect as they heard the judgment. Jesus is bringing the judgment even in his grace. He's bringing judgment so that people will wake up. 
John the Baptist, when he was, saw the Pharisees and Sadducees think they'd just get in line and get baptized too. They wanted to kind of take advantage of the movement. Use the same language that Jesus is going to use in a little bit. He says, who warned you, brood of vipers, to flee the wrath to come? Even that is an invitation. The second verse of the song, Amazing Grace, says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. How are our hearts going to fear if we don't give them the truth that judgment is coming? That all the world stands guilty before God. Jesus in his love and his mercy is telling them what's coming that they might flee. But he says, woe to you because they prevent people from coming. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are going in to enter. They call themselves the gatekeepers. They kind of let Israel think they let people into heaven, that they decided on earth who could get into heaven and who couldn't get into heaven. They, were, they excluded people. They prevented people. They were a stumbling block. Verse 15. We skip 14. It's truth. It's probably borrowed. The writers, uh, the, the copiers of Scripture probably thought, well, this is important too. We'll bring it in from Luke and Mark. Jesus said these words. It wasn't just original, part of the original manuscripts though. And later he's going to call them robbers anyway. We remember when Jesus was there at the, during that, that time in the temple that week, they were watching as the big shots came and made a big ostentious display of how they were giving money and the widow brought her two mites and Jesus recognized her and said she's given more than all of them. But he said, these other guys, they make a pretense of prayer and they go rob these same widow's houses. But he'll get to that. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Why? Because that's all they have to offer. They pervert their followers. They twist them up. And what God is doing is just saying, what Jesus is saying is, that's what's in their heart is wickedness. And that's all they can disciple to is wickedness. The rebellion is passed on. That's all they can do is pass on that perversion. They pervert their followers. Verse 16 through 22, they are liars. Now you read this, and it seems kind of complicated, but that's their whole system. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering of the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, whoever swears by the altar and everything on it, Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What's he saying? They're liars. Why? Because that's their father. And so they invented this very complicated system when they didn't have to keep their word. In the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? Don't swear by anything. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But they're like little children. I don't know if you ever played this game. You promise to do something, you know, your little brother. Okay, I promise I'll do that. And then you pull out your fingers. Sorry, fingers were crossed. Just a complicated version of the same thing. 
Oh, well, I said I would do that business deal with you, but remember, I just swore by the all by the by the sacrifice, not by the altar. I swore by the gold of the temple, not by the temple. And they had this very complicated system of lies. And you had to be on the inside crowd to even figure out what it was. Jesus had to figure it out. They're just like their father, the devil, who from the beginning was a liar and a murderer. And that's who they are. And he calls them out. He said, you're under a curse. If you die in your sin, you're going to hell. Then he says, Verses 23 and 24, they turn the truth upside down. They invert it. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, I can imagine... When he gave that little illustration at the end, a lot of people in the crowd were just kind of laughing under their breath. Just the idea of these guys with their big fancy robes, straining out gnats. What were they doing? Well, the Bible says you're to give the first tenth in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saint was to give the first tithe of their harvest. So they had their little plants growing in the window for seasoning their food. And so they had little herbs, and they'd have ten leaves, and they'd count out one for God, and they have nine little leaves left, little tiny seeds. Okay, there's one for God and nine for them. And they're, oh, they're so careful about that. But they don't care about justice. Now, we know about that in this country, don't we? You know, the, the picture of our justice system is a woman that has scales and she's blindfolded so she can just go with, with facts. But we know in this country, if you have less money, you get less justice. So, well, I've had attorneys in the crowd go, oh, that's, that's terrible, you shouldn't say that. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Get a better attorney. And then you can get off. You won't spend the hard time. You'll get a soft place to go because you have more money. You've got a better attorney. That's just who the Pharisees were. We know people. We can get by with it. So surprising, these people that cheated try to get their kids into uh, these movie stars, get their kids into colleges, and they're so, so shocked that they should be caught. They should be in trouble. Some of these politicians that do these awful, wicked things, and they're so shocked when they get caught because they just begin to think they should be able to do what they want because they're the privileged people. Justice, real justice isn't for them. But he said they neglect that. They pervert justice. And mercy, they don't know anything about mercy. These are the guys that lay the big laws on people. They know anything about mercy. And faithfulness? Faithfulness to what? The only thing false teachers are faithful to themselves. We as believers know what we're called to be faithful to, and that's the Word of God. And I believe in our day and age, there are many people in all, across all denominations that would call themselves Christians, but when it comes to the Word of God, they pick and choose what they want. That's what the hypocrites did. They're not faithful. Oh, I know the Bible says that, but you don't understand my circumstance. That's the Pharisees. That's the hypocrites. No, God's word says something. It's for all of his children to submit to. That's what the gospel is. You submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't know about faithfulness. 
except to themselves. And so they turn it upside down. They don't like it. They just change it. In the Old Testament, God said, woe to them that call good evil and evil good. That's these guys. Several years ago, I think it was after the election of George Bush for the second time, and there were several politicians met, and I don't know why I caught it, but there was a little bit good, good sermon illustration. And Hillary was there, and they were lamenting the fact that they'd allowed the other party to get the moral high ground. And I was thinking to myself, moral high ground, if you stand for everything the Bible says is wickedness, how can you do that? Well, we know today, don't we? Just change what the morals are. Sin is no longer sin according to the word of God. It's sin if you point it out that the word of God says that. Now you're a hater. They would, a lot of theologians, liberal theologians, don't like this passage. Oh, this isn't Jesus. This was just added later. Jesus would not, never be this harsh to people. Listen, one day Jesus is going to say to those that have not submitted to him, depart from me who work iniquity. I never knew you. The saddest words that any human being can hear. Words of judgment. And the reason he gives the words of judgment is so that others that are there under the judgment will flee the wrath to come. That's his grace and his mercy. But they turn the truth upside down and it looks like they're so fastidious about the little tiny things when really they're swallowing camels. A camel's an unclean animal. And here they are just straining out the little tiny seeds and swallowing a whole camel. Verse 25. They are self-indulgent thieves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. They do it for themselves. Just to indulge themselves. Jesus sees it. He looks at their heart. And he calls them out. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. You see, God's concerned about the inside. The inside will affect the outside. We sing a song, From the Inside Out. Verses 26 and 27, they corrupt everything that touches them. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. So you too will outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were the law to themselves. Pastor Howe and I were younger. There's a great movement in, in some leaders that were really drawn to a certain fellow that was a pastor in Hammond, Indiana. And he went everywhere preaching, and at the same time, his, his life was just total lawlessness and immorality. And when it came to light that he was sleeping with half his congregation or the people that he was sleeping with, the other people had to justify and say, well, he's a great man. He's like King David. Now, some were not surprised because they knew something was wrong. And when true spiritual leaders read these, those that teach the word of God, it makes us examine ourselves also and make sure. Because we know that God looks at everything. You don't hide anything from God. But they thought, well, the, the, you know, the ends justify the means, and it's okay. No, it doesn't. It's not okay. God looks at them. What, what was he saying? 
Well, see, every year after the rains came, a lot of the whitewash would get washed off the tombs, and especially at times of feast when people were traveling down to Passover, they had to go back and everything along the road, if there was a tomb there, they had to whitewash it so that people didn't get touch it and be ceremonial unclean. And he says, you know, on the outside, you're just like that. Lights up in the sun and it's beautiful. You see it there. But inside, everybody knows it's just corruption and dead men's bones. And they corrupt everybody they touch. That's what the tall false teacher does. It's amazing to me that a, a person will make a decision for Christ and the next thing you know, the cults show up. How do they know? Well, because Satan is the prince and the power of the air. And a new believer, you know, what's in his heart? They just want to please the Lord. They're so excited about being saved. They just want to please the Lord. And then the cult person shows up and says, oh, well, you just lack one thing. Just like the Judaizers did in Paul's day. And we have that key to knowledge, whether it's the Moonies, the Mormons, or the Jehovah's Witnesses. They show up, oh, well, you're missing something. In the Church of Christ, they come, oh, well, you need to be baptized in our church. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And they lay these burdens and these legalism that the Bible doesn't know anything about. And they twist people and they pollute them. And they can't lose their salvation, but their life is ineffective because now they're burdened with this legalism and this corruption. And then he says to them, they are murderers, verses 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, I'm going to give you a chance to just fill it up, and I'm going to make you a part of all the judgment that comes from the very beginning of those from, the, from Abel all the way to the end of time. You can just join in with those murderers. You know what the greatest persecution of true believers are? It's religion. It's religion. And he uses this one illustration, verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the temple and the altar. That's an amazing story. There was a wicked, wicked queen named Ataliah. She was a daughter of Jezebel of the northern kingdom, the wife of Ahab. And their daughter, Ataliah, married one of the kings of Judah. And he died, probably because he was wicked. And then she becomes queen. So she decides, instead of having her grandson or any grandson be the next rightful king, she would destroy all of them and take over herself, and she would be the queen of Judah. And there's this righteous priest there named Berechiah that is able to save and hide one of the king's son named Joash. And Joash was just very small. And so they hit him and they trained him up in the word of God. And when he got to be, I think it was eight years old, they bring him out and say, here's the king. And he has the guards take care of Grandma Ataliah. And so he grows up and he's blessed and he brings the, there's a revival and people come back to truth. But you know what, what happens to any nation God establishes and they get blessed and they get successful. And then what happens? They drift. They begin to drift. So God sent Zechariah, Berechiah's son. Berechiah had saved the king's life. But they forgot about that. And he begins to prophesy the truth. And the people complain about it. 
And so the king allows them to go and murder the son of the man that saved his own life. What wickedness. Listen, God sees it all. Now our courage is to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When we die in faithfulness, that's, that's not a bad thing. We stop breathing earth air, we wake up breathing heaven's air with reward for all eternity. But God's not going to forget the murderers and Jesus is calling them out. You say you wouldn't do it, but the proof is you're doing it right now. Seeking to murder the very Son of God. Verses 37 through 39, Jesus gives, talks about judgment, invitation, and promise. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her, how often would I have gathered your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You were unwilling. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he looks across and he can see those that he is cursing right now, and this is their opportunity to realize and know that the invitation is still open as long as they live and breathe. But he goes on, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. He's already told them what's going to happen. He's going to tell the disciples again in the next chapter. And we know that's fulfilled when Titus the general from Rome comes and lays Israel or Jerusalem waste. They flatten it. And they throw the bodies of 1.5 million Jews over the wall. Rome is tired of the rebellion. But history tells us that no Christians died during that siege. You know why? Because Christians listened to the word of God and they knew it was time to get out, so they left. Because you obey the word of God. But then his promise. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's going to be at the second coming of Jesus. There's still hope. When we look at the book of Revelation, we see all the judgments, the devastation as the Lord Jesus comes and he unrolls the scroll and he redeems the earth back to itself and all the devastation that takes place and the judgment that's poured out on the earth. But you know what else happens during that time? Some from every tribe, nation, and people group come to Christ. Great harvest of souls and the whole nation of Israel. The promise that was given to Abraham in the third chapter or clear back in the beginning and to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis is going to be fulfilled. The one they've rejected, they will now see and weep over as they weep for a lost first child and they realize they missed it. And when you look at the, the chapter 53 in Isaiah, you see that prophecy of Israel recognizing the Messiah and coming back to him. It's going to happen. How come? Because our God is powerful. Father, we thank you that we have a hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven. Lord, we're thankful for even these harsh words that we might be warned, warned from false teaching and from false teachers. And we might examine our own lives to make sure these things don't touch us, that we keep our eyes on you, Lord. And Lord, we're so thankful the invitation is always open for whosoever will to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.